And welcome to Rink Wrap, the podcast. It's the uh, first in a series of them that I will be doing this season, majoring on the Boston Bruins and uh, hockey in the region as well. Uh, it's Mick Collagio. I write for the Standard Times in New Bedford, Mass. Our website is www.southcoasttoday.com. You can read my blog, Rink Wrap, at blogs.southcoasttoday.com slash Bruins. And follow me on Twitter at Mick Collagio, M-I-C-K-C-O-L-A-G-E-O. Uh, two things I want to get into today, uh, the, uh, the initial Rink Wrap blog. Uh, Tory Krug, while the Boston Bruins are obviously about halfway through training camp, um, and uh, as we enter the weekend, they're at uh, Detroit tonight. It's Saturday, September 23rd, and um, there's an awful lot uh, being written about what's going to happen to the Bruins uh, with all their candidates. Uh, you know, they probably have like, um, you know, uh, maybe seven legitimate candidates to fill but three forward spots maybe on the 23 23- if they go that many roster, uh, you dress twenty for a hockey game in the NHL. And uh, but my my big uh, thing right now is Tory Krug. This fractured, non-displaced jaw fracture he sustained on uh, Tuesday night in a win over Detroit. The game was almost over, and he got a puck right in the jaw. And uh, the plan was to reevaluate him in three weeks. So we're about two and a half weeks out of that, which means that the Bruins will have played at least two hockey games before Krug's reevaluation. And if that happens the uh, three weeks from the morning after the opener against Nashville, it would be uh, not three weeks from then, but three weeks from when it happened. The reevaluation would be as the Bruins are boarding uh, a plane or actually slated to open a uh, three-game Western road swing that'll take them uh, – to uh, Vegas, among amongst other places, Colorado as well. So uh, it's it's quite obvious that Tory Krug is not going to play that on that trip as well. It's uh, very unlikely. Therefore, uh, what happens in the wake of this to me is a much bigger deal. And the reason is because these decisions that get made on camp for the bottom six forwards are not etched in stone. They're going to change. Line mates are going to change during the season. They always do. Um, it seems as though the Bruins only have uh, really a couple, maybe three uh, pairs that you can count on seeing together this season. The first of those, obviously, Patrice Bergeron, Brad Marchand, and the second of those, David Krejci with David Pasternak, his countrymen. So uh, beyond that, everything is up in the air. Everything is negotiable. Who knows what will happen with Ryan Spooner? with uh, Jakob Forsbacher Carlson, who made a couple of very nice plays against Detroit before slamming hard against the boards and sustaining his own day-to-day injury. Um, so a lot going on there. I expect a lot of changes. I think they'll go well into the season, these changes. So uh, I'm, I'm not really too uh, hyped up about what happens with these decisions. I mean, cuts are disappointing, and you always want to see how a player is going to respond to that if they get assigned to the Providence Bruins of the American Hockey League. But beyond that... Uh, my attention is much more on this Tory Krug thing. And the reason is because he and Zidane Chara are the only returning left shots. And uh, people ask, well, why is that such a big deal when Brad Park, uh, before him Bobby Orr, and after him Ray Bork uh, were all left-handed shots who were great players off the right point for the Bruins and manning the right side of the rink and managing a whole hockey game from there. All-time greats, these players. But that was a much more improvisational era. And as such, uh, players invented strategy on the spot. They improvised the transition. They, they invented how, how to compete 
right in the middle of games. And um, that's a kind of a lost art in today's NHL. Uh, you have the amazing skill in today's NHL, but you you lose some of that macro creativity and things that change the game. Players um, have to change the game with extreme athleticism now, uh, or did that. Um, Gretzky probably did it another way. Uh, you know, you have um, uh, players now like Connor McDavid, whose stride Scotty Bowman compared to Bobby Orr's and how he can create separation in a league where so many players come to camp so fit and ready to go, and yet this guy can skate and make other people look like they're standing still. It's an amazing feat. Um, but it's so rare now that you can have a player change the game because of what he does. And she would usually changes the game nowadays is what coaches do. And um, I fully expect a competitive response to this new uh, stringent face-off rule that seems to have uh, eradicated all the jousting, not only in the, on the dot, but off to the wings at the hash marks. Um, no more jousting allowed. The, the physical art of the face-off is being eradicated from the league. And I don't know if they will succeed, but I do think that you'll see something outside of the face-off that you could see a whole team back away, for instance. And, and make sure the position is right so that the advantage one uh, is supposed to get from being able to cleanly win a draw without being all tied up in a, in a mosh pit of bodies uh, tangled up with each other's limbs and whatnot and hockey sticks, you, you now have teams needing to make competitive responses. And this may take three quarters of the season to emerge, but you will see one if they continue down this path. Um, the Tory Krug Zidane Chara left shot thing is important nowadays because, in contrast to the Orr, Brad Park, and even the Ray Bork era, uh, it's so coached a game now. Every 10 feet of ice is coached, and what a player does is so important and integral to the five man unit, especially without the red line and the need to protect against the, the long pass. Uh, you have, uh, you know, positioning on the ice is, is really, really important. It's so much easier to lose a hockey game than it is to win one. So uh, what you have is an Adam McQuaid, who uh, not a terribly skilled guy, but a wonderful competitor and just a resilient personality who loves the game of hockey, can't get enough of it, and will keep on going until they, he can't go anymore. Um, had a great preseason conversation with him about that. Uh, a guy like him has to play the right side because he's the right shot. If he's going to spin the puck out of the zone, it has to roll nicely off the kick play to the boards and go down the ice like he intends it to. If he who shoots it the other way as a right-handed shot, it may bite the boards. It may coast. It may bobble. It may bounce wrong off the boards. That's why it's so important for him to play his side. Even Zidane Chara played some right side as a left shot prior to coming to Boston, but how many shifts have you seen him play on the right side of the rink since coming to Boston in 2006? I don't think I can count them on one hand. So uh, even though uh, coaches like the Rangers, Elaine Vigneault has weaved his pairings as they go into the attacking zone to mimic what you do on a power play so that your sticks are inside and you can more easily one-time the puck, those guys will weave back and transition. The Bruins have even dabbled a little bit in this before the coaching change. Um, Kevin Miller, uh, especially under Claude Julian, before the coaching change last season, uh, proved himself to be uh, pretty adequate on the uh, left side. And so it's, uh, it was pretty much a fait accompli that he would wind up there this season, regardless of the Krug scenario. Now, without Krug to start the season and you really want a good start, 
Um, it, it's this is what interests me the most. I think Paul Postma suddenly becomes a much more viable presence in this roster than uh, originally supposed. He seemed like an afterthought and why a right shot instead of a left. Well, here he is, and now he's probably going to be the guy who's got the veteran savvy to go over there and perform. Um, and he may need to do it in a top-four role as the Bruins start the season. We'll see. Um, I wouldn't want to see them do it with Charlie McAvoy, although you may see that. And and just like you had to see it in the playoffs, he wasn't supposed to even be in Boston for the playoffs, and yet the injuries, three injuries to incumbent players – uh, put him into the lineup. It even put Joe Morrow into the lineup, and um, and he played so uh, so well and inspired hockey that um, it's pretty much assumed that his career is just going to skyrocket here. But uh, as we all know, um, Ray Bork's second season wasn't quite as good as his first. Glenn Wesley's second season not quite as good as his first. Um, this happens to really great hockey players. So uh, it's a little premature to make assumptions here that things are going to go a certain way. And um, and how the Bruins fare with only one left shot in their lineup who's not a prospect. Uh, that's going to be a, a really interesting thing because Robbie O'Gara, a defensive defenseman uh, who's who's kind of he's kind of dancing to the beat of the current NHL. He's showing a lot of movement as he plays and jumping into the attack and creating a short gap for himself with his uh, front lines. Um, he's showing that he can handle that pretty well. He may be the guy. Matt Grizzlick would be the greatest one-for-one one fit with Tory Krug as a left-shot offensive defenseman who is a bit like Krug, undersized, not as thick-bodied, but probably a little, natural, a little more natural speed to get from point A to point B. So he does things just a little differently than Krug, but Grizzlick, uh, this is these are the situ- these are the decisions that Bruce Cassidy was hoping to have to make based on merit at the end of camp. Now he has to make them based on fit, and he admitted before the Krug injury that fit could determine who makes the team and who doesn't. So that's what I'm watching. Okay, now that we got that settled, uh, the other thing I want to discuss in the first rink wrap podcast of the season is my first Bruins game. I promised this on Twitter, so now i got to come through. Uh, my father is from Hyde Park, Mass., part of Boston, and um, and he moved out uh, to Brockton to marry my mom. I'm a Brockton baby uh, from 1956, and when I was still in my diapers, he built the house in East Walpole because he got a job at Bird's. But he still had strong connections to the Hyde Park neighborhood, not only his side of the family, but uh, has some friends that, to me, in the 60s, these guys are like uncles, whether they were people from uh, from the Hyde Park bowling alleys owned by Ralph Nardoni, or um, uh, there was also this little guy who was about the size of Darren Pang, who had a very squeaky voice, and everybody called him Squeaky. His name was literally was literally Frank Esposito. He passed away about a year ago. God rest his soul. Wonderful guy. Longtime Bruins season ticket holder. His seats were in Section 1, Row E. Section 1, Row E of Boston Garden was on the Causeway Street side, immediately behind the aisle that you could uh, walk completely around the garden. It separated the stadium seats from the loge seats. Those who go back to Boston Garden days will remember this. Section 1 was directly across from the Bruins bench. So it was just left side of the center ice uh, barbershop stripe. Um, 
I wanted to go to a game in the worst way. I started watching Bruins games around 1965 on Channel 56 with Fred Cusick, Bruins highlights, they called them. They'd have highlights from three games and, um, and you get some funny ideas, you know, about, about the game of hockey when you're first watching it as a kid. And, um, and I had been to Fenway Park and loved it. I thought it was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. And uh, finally, uh, my dad got tickets for us uh, from Squeaky. And we went to our, my first Bruins game on January 25th, 1968 against the Montreal Canadiens of all teams. We were late, as the Collagios are wanting to do. We parked in a sardine parking lot on Commercial Street, which is the natural extension of Causeway once you get past North Washington, which is where the Charlestown Bridge is. And Paul Carey's used to be on the corner there. Well, a couple more doors down, there was a gas station, and we uh, we probably paid a whopping $5 to put the car there and and then walked, uh, trudged our way down through the brown slush. And walking to the garden was like a Batman movie, uh, the way the links between the buildings and the sound of the trains and uh, just uh, the way buildings wrap themselves around other buildings. You couldn't really tell which one was a shoe factory and which one was Boston Garden. There was really no, it was a completely different scene back then. It was dark, it was dingy, and looking back on it now, for me, very romantic. Um, We crossed the street underneath the Green Line subway tracks and entered into this... uh, ramp you walk up this ramp maybe about 100 feet turn around walk back up another ramp um you see a giant pit poster of johnny Busick. you know you're in the right place it was really exciting we get to to the east concourse uh where they had those little ticket kiosks that they hardly ever used and um it just was library quiet it was an empty place it was almost like we were there the wrong night you really couldn't hear anything, even though you were supposedly in Boston Garden for this game, which had started. And um, I'm wondering, what now? Well, there's, a, there's little double doors across the floor, and my father says, let's see what this is. And he opens it up. I can't tell you what level of sensory overload I had Boston Garden still had smoking back then and up in the reaches uh, above the you could see the scoreboard hanging oddly off center the lights there were so many television lights back then that is burning brightly almost blinding to you but you could look through them and see the gray mist and faces way up high above the coming events sign, which was at the facade of the second balcony. The flags of the original six teams hanging. And the rink looked so small. One net looked like it looked like we were playing street hockey in the driveway. It looked so small. And the place was packed with people. It was completely full. We're standing in the corner exit where, uh, where the stadium meets the loge. And Phil Esposito is coming down the board, so he's kind of sort of coming right at me. And uh, two Montreal players go to pin him against the boards, and he slides the puck across the ice in front of Rogie Vashon, and the place just goes, whoa. I just freaked out. I ran. My older brother and my dad were wondering, what did he, all I could hear in the back was, Mickey! I just ran. <laughs> 
finally my brother caught up to me and my father scolded me and said, you ever do that again? I'll get a good mind to take you home right now. And I knew he couldn't do it. And ironically, I ran to where our seats were. We, I just, by the time he caught up to me, we're at about section one. And um, it was the night of my life. It changed my life. It made me a junkie for Boston Garden, really. I mean, it's like I, uh, I, I, one of my great regrets was never getting down to the old Rhode Island Auditorium uh, to see the Reds play before they moved into the Civic Center, now known as the Dunk, uh, in the fall of 72. Um, back then, I had chances to go to games, and I, I just was more interested in, I got to get to the Garden. I got to see if the Bruins aren't playing, the Braves are playing. If the Braves aren't playing, the Whalers might be playing. If the Whalers aren't playing, I'll go see Box Lacrosse. Maybe maybe Ali on closed-circuit television fighting Kenny Norton. I don't know. Whatever it is, I just loved Boston Garden. Uh, some people, it was a rat hole, but it was, a, it was the greatest rat hole of my life. So, so there you have it. And, and um, I can talk uh, all day about the great hockey cathedrals that I've been to and, uh, and, and the great uh, fun of entering those buildings. Um, I'll tell you a good one about La Colisse in Quebec uh, next, next time. If I remember, I'll certainly tell it at some point. But uh, that's it for the uh, first Rink Wrap podcast uh, covering Bruins hockey. Um, I'm Mick Collagio. Follow me on Twitter at McCollagio. And uh, you can read my blog at blogs.southcoasttoday.com slash Bruins. And also, I want to throw this in too. The Gatehouse um, hockey writer is Mike Loftus of the Patriot Ledger, which is ledger.com. Uh, he does a, he's, he's the most un, unknown and underrated uh, presence on the, in the Bruins media um, he has a, he's like a professor uh, for hockey and very thorough and thinking and asked questions that coaches would ask. He actually was a uh, refereeing when he had to decide, am I going to referee or, or do um, uh, uh, sports writing? And um, so it's, uh, he's, he's a, a great reporter and veteran guy who goes way back. And, um, and, and you really ought to make sure that you read him, find him on, on Twitter uh, Mike Loftus, and and make sure you uh, read read him because if you want something comprehensive and professional that really tells you what's going on with the Bruins, an even-handed discussion, and if you want to be one of the smartest hockey fans, read his read his uh, read his reports. That's pretty much it. All right, so uh, I don't know when the next one's going to be, but I intend to be very active with this and looking forward to giving you lots more with the Rink Wrap podcast covering Bruins hockey. Until then, happy hockey, everyone. Thank you.